Sidinger here. We haven't met before. My name is Mark, and we are in a very unusual window in history. I think, I think most of us would agree that um, America is in a, in a pretty tough spot right now, generally speaking. I think politically, racially, economically, a lot of uncertainty. We, we made it through 2020. Uh, we, 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 God shut the whole world down, sent everybody to their room. And uh, we're kind of rebounding still from the effects of what happened with our young people. Uh, we have more people addicted to pornography, more people in our hour of, of history with mental illness, anxiety, depression than any window in history. We live in a generation that has more prosperity and money than any other history, especially if you live in America, and yet we are emptier with higher suicide rates than ever before. It would seem that we're living in a day and age that moral, uh, moral barriers are being broken, that moral depravity is on the rise, that wickedness is being flaunted, that evil is on the front and center stage. And I'll be honest, if it looks like if God would not intervene, we are in a window that things would not end well. But I got good news today. That God historically, even biblically, has done his finest work in hours like these. And I do believe that we are in the beginning of something very, very big. I think that many of you today, I'll just be, I want to encourage you today. I'm going to talk about something that might be outside of your comfort zone. Maybe theologically, you've always wrestled with. Uh, I know that many people go, you know what, Mark, that, that word revival that word awakening seems to be a Pentecostal or charismatic theme for fanatical people that are hyper spooky spiritual uh, that own shofars and banners. Now, listen, there are fanatical people out there. My grandma used to say this, which I remember what she said. I forgot last service. She said, a fanatic is someone that loves Jesus more than you do. And she goes, you know, I think, I think there's fanatics out there that are, are fanatical. They have a passion for God. But here's what I want to encourage you. If I could pastor this revival in Kentucky, it's going to break out. It's going to spread. Listen to me very clearly today. Whenever revival breaks out, there will always be people that participate. And there will always usually be inevitably be people that try to shut it down prematurely and people that try to keep it going too long. Historically. People will fall in love with where, where God has moved, and they'll try to build monuments where God was. This is where a lot of denominations were birthed. The most denominations in the world were birthed out of moves of God where he started, but he kept going. And they go, let's monument where he was and not where he is. And then you get into the lethargy of, of uh, liturgical practices that you go through a church service, but you do not connect with God with me today and so I don't ever want to fall in love with the methods more than the message I don't ever want to fall more in love with the, the with the liturgical practices of what we wear and how we pray and what tone and what what flux fluctuation that I pray in that I lose sight of connecting with God and I believe this morning that we are in a precipice time a, a critical window of history you know spiritual revivals are not for hyper-spiritual, creepy, Pentecostals, and charismaniacs. I believe revival, clearly defined, is, is basically when somebody comes to God in a way that God reveals himself fully. Wow. Revival is when we experience and come to really know God. Revival is what brings us to this adoration and this high praise. I've heard it said that 
that when God reveals himself, it's different than being present. We know that God is omnipresent. Right now he's in this room. Right now he's in California. Right now he's in Orange County. But there's a difference between God's omnipresence and his manifest presence. Omnipresence is the idea that he's here. Manifest presence would be kind of like, I've heard it said, if there was a billionaire in the room today, if a billionaire was sitting in the tents, he would be here, present. But if he stood up and offered everybody in the tent $100,000, he would manifest that he is a billionaire. Who wants him to manifest right now? Come on. Do it, Lord. Go ahead and stand up. You know who you are. <laughs> manifest. God is present, but in revival, God manifests his attributes. Some people laugh. Some people get healed. Some people cry. Some people fall over. I love what Jordan said. What does she say? A holy, holy spirit roll down. Where's the biblical precedence for that? Well, John 18, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, the glory of God caused them to step back and fall to the ground. I do believe that your finite body cannot handle the majesty of an infinite God. Amen? So I'm here for it. Everybody else that's here for it said a good amen. I'm going to date my notes today. Stay married to the Holy Spirit. Is that right? John chapter 4 is where we're going to turn. I'm going to read about a familiar passage. If you grew up in church, if you've been in church for probably longer than a year, I'm going to guess that you've heard somebody teach out of John chapter 4. It's a very popular story. Because in it, Jesus tackles the biggest three divides of the day. He tackles sexism, racism, and religion in one conversation. Incidentally, he reveals to this woman for the very first time that he actually is indeed the Messiah. Beyond that, he actually gives this broken woman that had five husbands on number six uh, the greatest revelation of worship we have in the New Testament. And then beyond this, the story is also significant uh, because it takes place at a well that starts off talking about water. It goes into worship, and it leads to this woman witnessing with this power that changes a city. I like the story because anytime I see one person change a whole city, my ears perk up. I thank God if you could use a Samaritan woman to revive a city, maybe you could use Rochelle and I. Maybe you could use Joel and Melanie Faust. Maybe you could use some of our OC college students. So I'm fired up today. If you have your Bibles, I want to talk to you a little bit today about glorious disturbances. Glorious disturbances. You see, I believe at the core of any personal revival is a glorious disturbance. Some of you today, you judge the word revival because you never experienced it. You judge people that get excited about God, lift their hands in church, and pray loud because you've never experienced it. Here's what I would encourage you pastorally. Never judge somebody that has more of God than you've had. Never criticize something because you haven't experienced it. Biggest disservice you can do to yourself is to think that your eight-pound brain has all knowledge and all revelation of all mysteries in the kingdom of God. If heaven can't contain the depths of our God... I'm pretty sure you haven't figured them out in 22 years. Which is usually when you think you have God figured out. Well, I'm 22. I'm in my first year of Bible college. Figure this all out. This preacher's way off. Do yourself another favor. Don't throw rocks at ministries that are doing more for God than you've ever done. That's a word for somebody. We always want to criticize people that are doing it more than we are. 
And usually that's rooted in insecurity. And so don't do that. I always get people saying, you Joel Osteen, he's a false prophet. Bishop T.D. Jakes this, this person that, that person, this brick warren, this person. I'm like, look, if they've led more people to the Lord than you have, just Bless your little heart. I know you're a little sidewalk prophet, but um, until you've changed the city, just shh. You ready? John chapter uh, 4, it says this, that this uh, Jesus needed, verse 4, he needed to go. I'm going to read 19 verses out of order, so stay with me. Verse 4, he needed to go through Samaria. Jesus did. He came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground where Jacob's well was given to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied out from his journey, he was fully God, but he was also fully, fully man. Thus, he sat by the well, and it was about the, new, the sixth hour. It was noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone away into town to buy food. Scholars say, likely Chick-fil-A. That's a joke. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Rabbis don't talk to women. Jews don't talk to Samaritans. And uh, yeah, you, we are different, we are different uh, belief structures. And uh, we have no dealings with each other. Jesus answered, he said, if you knew, say it with me, knew. Tony, you, sometimes you don't know the gift of God that's right in front of you. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. She goes on to a conversation talking about what are you going to draw with? How are you going to get this water? He's like, trust me, it's real. It'll fill you up. You'll never thirst again. He's talking about salvation. Verse 15, the woman said, sir, give me some of this water that I can, that I can not thirst anymore. And, and I don't want to come here and draw water ever again. He said, deal. Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, um, well, I know we've been talking, for a while, talking water for a while, but I don't have a husband. He says, you've answered honestly. You've actually had five husbands, and the one you're with right now is not your husband. In that, you spoke truly. Someone say, uh-oh. Jesus is the only one that has words of knowledge that strong and doesn't get smacked. So even if I knew that, I'm like, I'm going to keep that to myself. Like, Lord, send somebody else to say that. She says, I perceive that you are a uh, prophet. Good guess. She said, our fathers worship. So she turns the conversation from water to worship. Our fathers worship on this mountain. You Jews say that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. Where's the place that we ought to worship? Verse 23, Jesus said, look, the hour is coming. And now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Some you never connect with God because you've only known the worship of the world. World's, Babylon's worship is with the soul and with lies. It's soulish and it's triggered around lies. Live for the moment. We're just, we're just, we're just mammals. So let's, you know, like the discuss, like we, that's an old song. We, we have songs that talk about lies and we have songs that deal with our soul. Do you know that music wasn't made for us? It was made for God. So he says, this is the type of worship that the Father is seeking. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. She said, well, when the Messiah comes, he can tell us all these great things. Jesus is like you're looking at him. That's paraphrased. 
And at this point, the disciples returned. She then, at verse 28, leaves her water pot, and she went into the city and said to the men, said to the who? Women didn't talk to men, but this man, this woman God used, she wasn't scared of men. She went into the city and she said, come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Who would be excited about that? (laughs) I'll be honest. If God showed up and he's like, let me tell you everything you've ever did. I'm like, let's keep this to ourselves. But she somehow, she heard the love in his tone. That she was fully seen, fully known, fully, fully loved. And she went into the city. She's like excited. He knows everything that I did. John leaves out and he still loves me. It's probably the idea here. He knows everything that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went into the city and came to him. Goes on, it says in verse 39, and many of the Samaritans, how many? I love it when it says many. Whenever I see many people turn into God, I get excited. Many of the Samaritans of the city believed in him because of the word of the woman (sighs) that she testified. He told me everything that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. He stayed two two more days, 48-hour revival service. Many more believed. How many more? Who believes that many more are getting ready to believe this week? We had 27 first service here alone. That's a lot for first service. And now indeed, indeed is the Christ. Now no, we know indeed that you are the Christ, the Savior of the world. Not only because of what she said, but we have heard it for ourselves. They believed. Let's pray this morning. I'm going to talk to you about glorious disturbances. Father, we love you. Thank you for the way you disturb us in a glorious way. Would you meet us here today, whether we're atheist or agnostic, whether we're Buddhist or Muslim, whether we grew up never, never having any faith at all, or Lord, whether we've lost our way, we've gotten off track and got sucked into the currents of Babylon, I pray this morning that you would lead us back to you. God, if you can use this woman to change a city, Lord, surely you could use us. In Jesus' name we ask, in Jesus' name we pray, and God's people shouted, amen. 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 I don't know if you've ever been disturbed before. Any parents here? You raise your hand. Dad, 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 mom, 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 mom. I don't know how many times a day I hear mom and dad. I feel like when kids are little, it's like that's the word they want to use more than any other word. I've been disturbed. I think it's part of being a parent. It's a glorious disturbance when you have kids. I've been disturbed in a lot of settings. I've been disturbed, uh, you know, my, my little ones were, were growing up, getting potty trained. We had those moments at night. You're in a deep sleep. You're in the third heaven. You're like with Michael and Gabriel, everyone's excited, you're playing the harp. And then you hear like, you hear like these little footsteps on your hardwood floors running into your room. We're like, oh, here we go. Here goes the 30-minute disturbance. We had it down pretty good when our, when our girls were getting potty trained that Rochelle would take the girl and clean her up or throw in the bathtub, whatever it is, and get her ready, put her in new jammies. I would change the sheets. I would mop up the mattress. <laughs> Things you do for kids. It's a disturbance. But, it, but having kids, even though it's a disturbance, it's a glorious disturbance. We've been disturbed. There's non-glorious disturbances. We were in a hotel about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, Christmas break. We were staying like the 38th floor of this hotel. And it was probably, I don't know, the middle of the night, three in the morning. The fire alarm went off. 
Who's ever been at a hotel when the fire alarm goes off? I'm convinced the night shift guy's like, if I'm awake, everybody else is going to wake up too. <laughs> so if you want to know what people really look like, just leave your room at three in the morning. No one has time to paint the barn. Everybody's on an equal playing field. You got curlers in your hair. All guys wearing hats. Girls got these big old Orange County sunglasses on. It's like the walking dead, man. We got into this staircase, because you can't use the elevator, and we're on the 38th floor. So like, all right, let's get some exercise in the middle of the night. So we started walking down the staircase with the rest of the hotel, just a bunch of disgruntled, angry people. So we walked down, we made it to like the fourth floor, and then they made the announcement, it was a false alarm, you can go back to your rooms. I'm like, someone better get fired. And then I prayed for him, amen? Get him a new job. <sighs> um, disturbance. You can be disturbed in a lot of ways. We know that you can be disturbed in your job. You, can be, you get a bill this week, disrupts your budget. You can get medical news this week that dis disrupts your health. You can get relational news. I, I know this, it's true. We're, we're all one phone call away from our knees. It's the truth. Some of you had those horrific phone calls. Tragedy, loss, heartache, pain. We live in a fallen world. Things can disrupt you quickly. I can, I've seen disruptions in politics. I've seen disruptions in the economy. I've seen racial disruptions. I've seen things happen in our, in our land over the last three years that have disrupted the flow of business, the flow of operations, the flow of church, the flow of church and state, the flow of all, everything that can be shaken has been shaken the last three years. They're like, you want to make a lot of friends? Uh, be a school nurse or a, or a pastor during the last three years. I was thinking, uh, we've been through a lot, but there's disruptions. But there's, but there's also good disruptions. There's spiritual disruptions. I think there's the, the, best type, the best kind of disruptions are the ones that you didn't know you needed. I think that this story of John 4 is so beautiful because it's about a woman that probably had no idea that her life needed to be disrupted. Pretty content. You can't really celebrate John 4, the Samaritan woman at the well, until you celebrate John chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. What we know about our Jesus is, is he disrupted a very smart, a very wealthy, a very powerful socialite that had a religious pedigree that was one of the most prolific leaders of his time named Nicodemus. And the Lord showed Nicodemus that he needed a savior. But then right after that, in John chapter 4, he goes, I also need to go to Samaria because there's someone there that's at the bottom that I need to show also how much I care. And I would like to share this with all of you that you're never too wealthy to need God and you're never too poor to need God. You're never, you can never out-success God and you can never out-fail Him. Some of you think you fail too much for the Savior, but He's a Savior. That's like saying your life is so... So heavy that you don't need any buoyancy. No, we all need some buoyancy to flow. And the good news is you can't out-success the king, and you can't scare him away with your failures. She's at the well midday because all the sophisticated women of the town were there in the morning. I've taught on this passage before, so I won't exegete it as I've done in the past. I want to point a couple things out, though, that it was one encounter with Jesus that set an entire city ablaze. Just one. 
And it came from a woman, who was a woman, by the way, in an era of time that was very sexist, that if you weren't a man, women couldn't vote, women didn't have rights, women couldn't testify in the court of law. That's why it's kind of scandalous that Jesus would have women listed in Matthew when, it's, when he talks about his family tree. That's why Job was so scandalous at the end of his life to give his daughters an inheritance because men didn't give their daughters an inheritance. But Job didn't just hear about God, he saw God. And he knew God so closely that he started being generous with people that no one else was generous with. Because that's what happens when you become friends of God. This woman goes into the city against all odds, risk her social standing that was already very muddied, and said, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. It's crazy to me that the revival of Samaria would actually set ablaze, so much so that in Acts chapter 8, a an evangelist by the name of Philip would go to Samaria after the persecution of the early church and lead a revival, a second wave of revival in Samaria. The revival would get so heated that they would send for Peter and John to come stoke the fires. And when Peter and John came, the entire region got filled with the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. I said it. Scary. It's wild. But the scholars say that the reason why Samaria had fertile soil was because of a Samaritan woman that encountered Jesus at a well. Somehow the testimony of the Samaritan woman ripened the ground for a move of God. Love the story. But I want, I want to bring your attention that there would never be a Samaritan revival if there wasn't a supernatural encounter that took her beyond her own reason, her own logic. You know what the woman's like? She's like most of us. She would rather argue over theology, rather argue over race, rather argue over politics or religion than actually say, Holy Spirit, if you're real, do something supernatural. Notice that Jesus doesn't come down to her level of arguing. She wants to argue over, is this their well? Can you, are you greater than Jacob, the one that gave us this well? Are you supposed to worship there or here? Whose way is right? The Samaritans are the Jews, and he doesn't deal with any of her nonsense. He says, oh, I'll give you some water. Where's your husband? She's like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't have a husband. He's like, you're right, and you're honest, because the guy you're with right now isn't your husband but you have been with five husbands before him somehow he said that which i can't imagine how he said it and not get smacked <laughs> but he did and his prophetic connection to the spirit of god dismantled every theological every racial and every sexist stronghold in a broken woman's mind. Here's what I would tell you. People go, Mark, what's the hope of America? Well, we got to have more this type of education in school. We got to have more this type of awareness in politics. We got to have this, we got we to do it here and here and here and here. And I do believe that reform needs to come. But I want to make, I want to bring something to your attention that I do believe revival happens to people. Revive people bring reformation to systems. You can't reform a system without reviving a person. 
That's why if we just out educate, we could get all the education, all the money we want. Money and education just makes wealthier, more educated devils. If a heart is not ignited, if people don't know Jesus, we become more influential, more educated, more affluent, wicked people. Because inherently inside of all of us is a selfish need for me, for my. That's why you can't out-success your way from depression. You can't marry a good enough person to break the sex addiction. You can't make enough money to break the greed grip. You can't get enough stuff to break the power of fear. There are some things that only the creator can liberate inside of you. Yeah. And that's what we know. Because money, sex, and power made you happy. D.C. and Hollywood would be the happiest places in the world. But we find people taking their lives by the dozens because that stuff and things do not bring fulfillment to humanity. Only God does that. She wants to argue over water. She wants to have an intellectual conversation about worship. But notice it was the spirit of the living God flowing through our Savior through a word of knowledge that dismantled all of her arguments. You know what I think some of you are looking for? You're not looking for more religion. You've tried other churches. You've been to, you've been to, to, to mass. You've been to the mosque. You've been to temples. You've been to all these different places. You've been to holy rooms that are millions of dollars to build that are beautiful, but there is not an ounce of God's presence. Some of you were raised around people. That, that, that grew up in the church that had no fruit of God in their life. Some of you hate God because of someone that said they loved him that didn't represent him. Here's the worst thing you can do is judge God's goodness as a father by some of his crazy kids. Those kids were crazy before God saved them. But I'm sorry if you've been hurt by the church and I'm sorry if you've been wounded by a dead, dead religion. But I would be honest with you today, and I would say if I experienced the cure for cancer that you had, make no mistake about it. I'm going to tell you whether you like it or not. And that's exactly how I feel, that I was blind, that I was in a dark place, that I was in a lost condition. And God, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, rescued me. And so for the rest of my life, I'm going to make it known to the world, there is one that saves there is one that heals, and there is still one that delivers. Can I get an amen in the back? She wants to talk worship. She wants to talk water. And God, through his spirit, did something inside of her that ignited this power to witness. Most people don't witness because they've never worshipped. And most people have never worshipped because they've never tasted the water that doesn't run dry i think the truth is this woman's witness was connected to what she tasted and something unlocked in her heart when she was taught about worship notice that jesus doesn't teach the subject of worship to his 12 disciples doesn't teach it to the 75 that he sent out didn't teach it to the 120 that were in the upper room doesn't even teach it to the 5,000 men the 15,000 in the crowd he reserves the greatest right and revelation of worship to a woman that was maybe more broken than any other woman he ever would encounter and could it be that people that are hurting the most are the ones that need to know the power of worship the most something in worship heals our broken life 
We know this, that she experiences at the well, at noon, when no one else is there, a glorious disturbance. I didn't realize my life needed God. And she had a personal revival that took place that sent her back into the city, left her water pots. She forgot why she came to the well, left her pots, ran into the city, and told the men, wouldn't you know that God would use a woman that's had five husbands, is on number six, that's not scared of men, to be a witness in Samaria to the men. I got news for you. Some of the weaknesses of your past can become some of the strengths of the future. God actually would leverage her past mistakes for her future platform and say, I'm going to give you a message and you're not going to be embarrassed or scared of what men think about you. And somehow people took her serious because all the men showed up and they said, hey, we heard what you did for her. She said this, come see a man that told me everything that I've ever done. Now listen, if you've been married five times, divorced five times, number, number six, she probably has a litany of things that you wouldn't be excited that God knew about. Let alone God told you about them. He told me everything. I'm like, I'll be like, God, just tell me some stuff. Give me like the sports center top 10 plays of my life. Let's leave out some of those practices and some of those low moments. But somehow, are you still with me today? Her encounter with Jesus ignites a city, ignites a region. Asbury, one kid getting up, confessing his sins, giving his heart to Jesus, ignited a room that set a fire that's been going for 12 days. Most people never experience personal awakening because of three reasons. Number one, if you want to know what quenched the fire of revival in your heart. And by the way, do yourself a favor right now. Otherwise, I'll do an altar call for pride at the end. Don't think about anybody but you right now. The most arrogant thing that we say in church is, oh, man, so-and-so should have been here today. It's like, what about you, Jethro? First thing that will kill a personal revival with you is busyness. I know we live in Orange County. I know we're all trying to pay to live here. We live with a city of the ugliest multi-million dollar houses in America. Spend $2 million on a house that has shag carpet. God help us. I know it's busy here. But I think that busyness is one of the things that kills our desire to meet with God. So my first thing, my first challenge is if we're going to be a church that is a participator in this great awakening in America. we got to make up our minds today that say, regardless of how busy my life is, there will always be room for the king. I don't care how many sports my kids are in, how many hours a week that's going on in my business. I will never get so busy that I don't have time for God. You know what's sad to me as a pastor? During the recession, I saw businessmen and women that had millions of dollars lose everything, and they were in all the prayer meetings, they were at all the services. They were all in, all in, all in. And God, through his mercy, would get them out of the recession. All of my friends, they bounce back. They're doing better now than they've ever done. But I would say a handful of those guys and a handful of those girls, they allowed the blessing and the favor of God to actually bless them out of the church. It's like they acknowledged God in their need, but they disregarded God in their favor. And I want to challenge you, Orange County. That Jesus is not an elective credit. Yeah. 
He's not what we do and we have nothing else going on. He's our priority. Are you hearing me? Can I get a good amen? Busyness will disrupt your ability to be revived. Secondly, indifference. There's many people that are indifferent. When I say revival, some of you have bad experiences. You think of that crazy church you went to growing up that had, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff happening. And listen to me very clearly today. I do believe that God is a God that does all things decently in order. But most of you are indifferent because you've never had an experience with the authentic. How can you be indifferent? We're indifferent towards God's glory. People say, Mark, I'm so irritated by the darkness in the world. I'm so tired of all these satanic agendas that are front and center. So tired of the darkness that are going on. It's affecting our children and our kids' kids. Do you know that being irritated by the dark in the world doesn't make you an on-fire believer? Pharisees were irritated by the darkness in the world. What makes us children of God, it's when the presence of a grief and a sorrow is in our heart because of the way which men are not connecting with the glory of God. When we hurt because people aren't experiencing Jesus the way that he could be experienced, we are in the early stages of having God's burden and his heart for his people. I've heard it said that a man that is burdened is a man that prays. A lack of burden for the lost actually leads to a lack of urgent praying. We had people here last night till 3.30, 4 a.m. praying. And I'll tell you what, those people that were here last night, they probably weren't the ones that needed to be in a prayer meeting. You catch that? I'm pretty sure they're probably going to heaven. They were burning last night because they had the burden of God for the people that weren't here yet. That's what revival is about. It's when he awakens you to the point that no longer are you just interested in your needs, your life, your desires, but you want to stand in the gap for those that aren't at the party yet. That's what God is looking for. When we're obsessed with a supreme desire to know him, and to have everybody that we meet know him as well. See, most people, they don't experience revival because they're too busy for it. They're indifferent to God's glory. I have this, write this down, number three. We underestimate what a revival can change. Some of you are like, really, Mark? Another revival message? Just preach the cross. Just, just tell people to go to heaven one day. Just preach the blood of Jesus washes away our sins. Just, come on, stop getting all excited about heaven coming to earth. Truth is, most people get irritated when people preach about revival because they underestimate the impact that revival can have in a region, a county, a state, and a nation. We know that historically, every great awakening has changed the fabric of society. Remember this. Reformation comes to systems. Revival comes to people. Restoration only happens when reformations come and revivals happened. Revival ignites hearts. Hearts that are revived reform systems. And systems that are reformed restore regions. This is what we're in it for. Some of you are like, Mark, I don't care about being revived. Some of you don't know, you, you, you don't realize that you're spiritually dead. You know who doesn't have an appetite? People in a coffin. You know why they don't have an appetite? Because they're dead. And some of you are like, Mark, I could, go to, I could go the rest of my life and never step foot in a church again, and I wouldn't miss a thing. I'll tell you, you would miss a thing, but what you're not missing is an appetite because you're spiritually dead. I'm not talking about going to dead churches. I'm talking about going to places where God is. 
know the first thing that leaves you when you're sick? You're terminally ill? First thing that leaves? Your appetite. I'm not hungry anymore. You need to eat. I don't care. I'm not hungry anymore. You need to eat. Doctors will tell you, I don't care if you feel like eating. If you want a chance to recover, you have to eat. And I feel the heart of God saying, if you want a chance to see revival in your family, you got to learn how to start eating. Start feasting on the bread of life. Start feasting on the lamb that was slain. Jesus alone has the ability to revive our soul. David said, revive me according to your word. He says, your word is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light unto my path. He says, how can a young man cleanse his way? He says, by taking heed according to your word. Most people, they don't experience revival because they're busy, they're indifferent, or how about this? They underestimate what revival can change. I read about the Welsh revival. It took place in 1904, 1905. They had to retrain the animals in the coal mines because the, the animals would only respond to cuss words. And after everybody got saved, no one was cussing anymore. The animals didn't know how to respond. The bars were empty, actually started getting filled up with quartets. Police officers turned into quartets. Choirs, they would go around singing church songs. There was an awakening in the land, and one of the guys that was in it, in the revival, wrote this down. He said, during the revival, we could find no trace of the devil in Wales at the present time. Imagine how crazy that would be to drive through Orange County and go, I don't see any evidence of oppression here. It seems like God is on the throne, that hell is on the run, and the devil's having a bad day in Orange County. Mark, that's crazy. No, God has done it before. He's revived Nineveh. He's ignited revival fires in Malta. He saved the nation under the hour of Esther. We saw Hezekiah turn to God and bring the entire nation in. King Josiah turned the whole nation to God. Over and over and over throughout history, the book of Acts was a nonstop revival service. People adored him. They loved him. That's why Isaiah said, Lord, would you run the heavens? Would you come down? The mountains might shake at your presence. There's a cool book that was written about biblical revivals. He says there's nine attributes of biblical revivals. Listen to these nine. Don't, don't worry about writing them down. You can listen to the podcast later if you want to write them down. Just listen to this. Does this sound like America? This is what he said. Every biblical revival had nine traits. Ready for them? First trait. They occurred in times of moral darkness and national depression. Raise your hand. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Number two, each revival began in the heart of a consecrated servant of God who became the spark that ignited the fire. God has never needed the majority to turn things around. God does not need a board. How many, God so loved the world that he didn't send a board, a committee. He's always used a man or a woman that was fully surrendered to create a spark. Asbury started with one kid confessing his sins and it ignited a room. Third thing, each revival rested on God's word. Most of them resulted from proclaiming God's word boldly. Fourth thing, all resulted to return to worship in God. People when they were revived had a heart for the word and they had a desire to worship. 
Some of you intentionally miss the, me the music in the beginning of the service because you think the message is the good part. The message is for you. The worship is for God. And the reason why you don't like to worship is because you've never had an encounter with God. Today's the day. Fifthly, revival happened when each witnessed the destruction of idols that were there that existed in their day. In every biblical revival, they destroyed the idols of their time. Maybe we don't have gold idols anymore in Orange County, but I would say the idols of our time are social media, cell phones, idols of our time are sports, ESPN, NFL. And I'm, not, I'm not against any of those things, but listen to me. When we magnify the NBA above Jesus, when you have four hours that you're craving commercials during the Super Bowl, but you're checking your clock every 10 minutes on Sundays, God forgive us. Forgive us for celebrating uh, athletes and costumes that run around a field that do not change our eternity more than we celebrate the God that got out of the tomb. Forgive us. Forgive us for getting more excited about a movie coming out on Friday than we do about meeting with God on Sunday. Lord, forgive us for worshiping our kids more than you. Worshiping our marriages more than you. For loving money more than we love God. Forgive us. I'm not throwing rocks at you. I'm just saying we're all there. Orange County, we worship money. We worship success. In many ways, we, it's a good thing, but we worship our families. And if you're not careful, you'll put more interest in raising your kids up academically and athletically than you do raising them up spiritually. We want our kids to go to the best schools, so they go to the best colleges, get the best scholarships, so we put them to the best sports camps. And here's the, here, I'm, not, I'm not against it. But why would we value those things above a church camp? Around raising them in the house of God. I'm just telling you right now, I want to warn you, young kids, don't ever prioritize their academics or their sports more than their spirit. Because I'm just telling you, they can win the national championship, sign a 10-figure contract, and end up in hell. Strong. We need some of that strength to come back in the church. Most people won't tell you this. There's a billion ways to hell. There's one way to heaven that offends people. Well, Buddha, Muhammad, they never claimed to be the way. They said, follow this way and it'll lead you. Buddha said, follow the eightfold pillars. Muhammad said, follow the five noble truths. Jesus said, no, 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 no. I'm not telling you about a way. I'm telling you I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except, except, no, I don't care what it is, no one's getting to heaven outside of me. Well, you'll offend people if you say that. Jesus exclusively is the way to heaven. Then be offended. But know the truth in your offense. And I'm not throwing rocks, I'm just telling you, every man will stand before him one day. And let it be said, in California, there were preachers that weren't scared to offend people and say, Jesus did never claimed to be just a good moral teacher, never claimed to just be a good entertainer or a miracle worker. He claimed to be God. Remember, my, my uncle in the faith, he was in a taxi. Grab a seat. I'm almost done. He was in a taxi. He was in a taxi with this Buddhist guy. He's a Muslim guy. And the Muslim guy... He said, what are you here for? He says, I'm here for a church conference. It was in D.C. 
He says, oh, Jesus, good teacher. He says, yeah, he's a great teacher. But he's the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's God. And this Muslim guy lost his mind. How dare you say he's the Messiah? There's a lot of people in the world that respect Jesus as a good teacher, as a religious leader. And they're not going to heaven because they don't receive him as God. Jesus never claimed to only be a good spiritual teacher. He claimed to be God. When the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all these things. He said, if you're looking at me, you're talking to him. He claimed to be God. Scholars say that makes him either crazy, it makes him a deceiver, like no one's ever seen in history, or it makes him who he has to say he is. Those are the three options of Jesus. Jesus Christ is crazy, and everything he did was just laced with crazy. Or Jesus Christ was the greatest illusionist in history. And he somehow fooled all of humanity that he died, got out of the grave. And we know this wouldn't have happened because in those days, if they would have stole his body out of the tomb, it would have been the life of the Roman centurion for his life. If Romans lost a prisoner, they would give their life in exchange. There's a lot of reasons why we know historically Jesus was not stolen. He actually did raise. He did eat with the disciples for 40 days. We know this. How, do you, how are you so confident that he got out of the grave? We know that he is who he says he is because the people that knew him most were willing to die. Horrific deaths with the confession on their lips that Jesus Christ is God. Now listen, you might not be willing to die for Jesus today, but some of you, if someone put a gun to your head and said, You're gonna, I'm going to throw you in boiling oil, I'm going to throw you into a lion's den, and they're going to feast on you unless you deny Jesus Christ being Lord. There's a lot of Christians that probably would say, all right, I, I don't believe. But every one of those 11, they were willing to die. Peter was crucified upside down. John was boiled in oil, still didn't die. And literally, none of them were willing to deny him. And the only explanation, logically, is you would, you're not willing to die for a lie. They were willing to die because they believed that if Jesus got out of the grave, they'd get out of the grave. That if God did it for them, they'd do it for me. If Jesus rose, we rise. And what's crazy is you live fearless like that. That's why Paul was chains on the outside but free on the inside. Looked at Felix and said, man, I wish you were as I am. I'm free. He said, you're persuading me to be a Christian? He says, absolutely. Felix was free on the outside, but he was like many of you in bondage on the inside. But, but with chains on his hands, Paul said, I wish you were as I am. Because I'm telling you, when you discover that Jesus Christ is he, who he says he is, and you realize that he revives you, it's wild the level of fearlessness you'll live your life with. You still with me today? I'm, I'm not finished. Did I share all those points? Revivals will kill our idols. In a biblical revival, we'll record a separation from sin. You know it's a spiritual awakening when people start turning on their carnal nature. They start ratting themselves out. They start confessing their darkness. They say, I'm no longer... I heard Leonard Ravenhill once say, there's two types of people. There's those that are, 
that are dead to sin and there's those that are dead in sin. We choose what category we live in. But we actually take a war on sin. Seventhly, in every revival, people return to obeying God's word. Today we're trying to deconstruct the Bible. We're trying to cut and paste the parts that we do like. We read the Bible and try to get it to complement our worldview. Here's the problem. We don't read the Bible and change it to accommodate us. In a revival, people will, will change themselves. Revival about what's happening at universities right now and what we're getting ready to see this year. This is revival season in Jesus' name. I want to ask you today, if you're up for a glorious disturbance, if you're up for God bringing you back to your first love, let it not be said that we're like the Laodiceans that are rich on the outside but wretched on the inside. God, I'm giving you all of my heart. And here's my challenge for some of you older believers. Don't ever get satisfied with the fire you had in other decades. Lord, forgive us for ever being satisfied with windows that we knew you more than we know you now. I want more of God the older I get. Anybody else? If you're here today and you're burning for revival, would you stand to your feet? You want God to ignite a fresh flame inside of you? Just stand to your feet. You want God to put aside the busyness, the indifference, even the lack of un underestimating what God can change in a personal revival. God, I ask you for a glorious disturbance today. God, I ask you that you would turn us from our darkness. God, I pray that you would wash our land with the blood of the Lamb. God, I pray today that you would, you would uncap and unseal the whales, the whales in Southern California, the Azusa whales. I pray that you would unseal, Lord, the whales of the Jesus people movement. God, in Calvary Chapel and Vineyard in the early days, God, ignite a flame again in our land. We ask, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. That's what I'm going to do today. We're going to open this up. God's healing people. God's restoring people. God's delivering people. This is the moment that we give the Holy Spirit full preeminence. If you're here today, it's two groups. You know that you've lost your way. You've lost your way. You've lost your fire. You might even believe in God, but you know that you're not fully surrendered or you're not fully engaged. You say, Mark, I want God to revive me so I can reform the systems that God has put me in so I can bring restoration to the areas that God's called me to. If you're on, on the fence right now and you want to go all the way in, this message was for you. God, if God can revive a Samaritan woman and ignite a city, ignite me and ignite my neighborhood. From the neighborhoods to the nations, ignite us. I'm going to ask you to respond. And maybe you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus. I'm going to ask you to come too. If you want to respond today, have a personal encounter with God, most people under 45 have never had a burning bush moment with Jesus. Defines your life. I'm not asking if you believe in God. I'm asking, have you ever encountered him? I want you to do me a favor. If that's you today, and you say, Mark, I want to see revival in my day, and I want to see reformation in my lifetime. I want to give God everything today. I want you just to take a step out of your seat. If you can come to the front, you can come to the front. If it's taking two steps... I want you to physically move if you're hungry for God to do something great again in our lifetime. Let's get out of your seats. We're going to give God five, ten minutes, five or ten minutes right now. Just come to the front if you're hungry for a move of God, if you're ready to go all the way in, or for the first time you want to give God your heart. 
I don't care who you are, just come to the front right now. Start coming. Just start start coming. Just feel like everybody just needs to start moving. Just take a step towards him. Take a step towards him.